Hi, welcome back to another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I am joined once again by Lydia, finally, and a man that really doesn't need much of an introduction, IR and a security analysis, an analyst, and Navy vet, Mark Sloboda. How are you, Mark? So nice to have you back. Sarah, Lydia, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Double D Geopolitics. Double D, Double Ds. Lydia, how are you? I know you've had a tough couple weeks. Yes. Well, it's been a definitely a difficult week for everyone, for all of us. Uh, difficult and terrifying, and we're going to talk about it. And something that I guess we could get started with is that for a while now, I feel like not a lot of things were happening uh, in the conflict in Ukraine and but then uh, last week everything started happening all at once and among those things was the announcement the official announcement that a lot of people were waiting for from Russia that the Ukrainian offensive has failed and is over and Russia has started its offensive operations and so Mark we wanted to ask you and First of all, I want to tell you something which you're probably aware of, but our listeners love you so much for your realistic approach to things, and they can't wait to hear your thoughts. And so the question is, um, what do you think are uh, the immediate plans of Russia in this offensive in Ukraine right now? Let's say the next month or couple of months. How do you see that? Okay, so... Uh, first, I'd like to say that, I mean, although a lot of us maybe had the impression that not a lot was going on, say for the last three or four weeks, there of course was a lot going on. Uh, the, the Kiev regime forces were making their last gasp effort in the uh, kill box that they had walked into between Robotina uh, and Verboya. Um, and, uh, you know, they then uh, tried this strange last ditch effort to instead broaden towards the West, towards Kopani, where they also, uh, you know, met with uh, similar levels of, of uh, defense and resistance and, and haven't had any success there as well. And also, uh, the Kiev regime for whatever strange military PR logic they're operating under is apparently going to take to make a contested crossing of the Niper an amphibious assault, you know, across the river. Um, Russia has been pounding the far bank of the Harrison River for about three weeks now, maybe four. Uh, obviously, they got word of it. We didn't really have any indication. The first indication that we had was when the artillery and the fabs started going off uh, on the far side of Herson uh, in the, the towns stretched along the Dniper uh, just continuously. Um, and there's only, of course, one reason for that. Uh, we, we also learned that in some type of uh, typically puerile attempt to play this up to the uh, Western, particularly the American audience, 
they renamed two of their units there, Normandy and Omaha. Yeah, because, <laughs> uh, you know, that's what Banderite fascists do is they cosplay as the Americans in World War II. Uh, they, um, Russia has been also hunting down the small boats they obviously intend to be using for this, provided by the United States uh, with lancets uh, and, and other drones. Um, it, it apparently is still going forward. You know, we haven't seen, uh, you know, we, we, we've only seen these small contests for uh, uh, islands on the Dnieper and this very small uh, crossing uh, at the uh, Cossack camps, Kazachi Lagari, um, uh, for the last month. Uh, a very, very small foothold, uh, also under the Antonovsky Bridge. Uh, but uh, the, the, the terrain there, of course, is not suitable for any type of uh, mechanized, uh, you know, a breach, um, a beachhead on the other side of, of the Harrison. So not, not that they would be capable of transporting that across the boat. So we don't know where that's going yet or, or you know, but expect some strange last ditch effort i guess to to claim an, a a some other victory because the main offensive completely failed but there's been something going on there something something very heavy and then of course you know the russian uh, uh local offensive kupansk liman you know has been slowly but steadily progressing uh for you know, uh, over a month now. So what we've seen is the Kiev regime, one by one, all of the axes that they had launched as part of their offensive falter until the last one was left, and that one uh, being the one towards uh, uh, first Rebolta, then Verbolia, then then shift over to Kopani, and and that has also now died a death. And I think for the last two weeks. Russia has been launching small counterattacks all over, just probing, right? Um, uh, you know, reconnaissance and force, if you will, kind of poking the corpse of the Kiev regime's offensive and saying, are you dead yet? Can we go? Are you dead? And now it's, it's clear they're dead. Even the genocidal maniac Kirill Budanov, you know, uh, came up with this. It's off schedule their, their offensive is off schedule that's that's the uh, great euphemism he came up to and then just told you read into it what you want you know out of out of some type of uh insipid frustration uh so um now russia has launched counterattacks everywhere uh along the the, the contact line essentially everywhere um, and I would say that the two most important spots, quite obviously, are Avdeevka and Novomikhailovo. Um, and um, they've had some problems in Mikhailovo. Um, they um, were able to demine the one side. I, I can't remember whether it was the north or the south, but they demined one of the approaches to the city they plan on taking. But they didn't finish the demining of of the other one. Uh, the uh, obviously the U.S. Uh, was able to detect um, Russia's demining equipment, and uh, they hit it with HIMARS several days in succession. 
so Russia lost, um, I believe it was two Zmei Gariniches, uh, the, the Russian line charge throwers. Uh, and they also lost one of their, uh, the uh, UR-6, uh, one of their uh, demining robots, uh, an automatic uh, demining. You know, when I say a robot, it's like six tons. It's a pretty substantial robot, but it, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool little thing. Um, very, very uh, pretty uh, multitasking, not just as a demining uh unmanned vehicle uh but as a uh as a general combat engineering it can do quite a lot uh but anyway we lost one of them uh so that that approach uh has stalled uh and they're going to have to finish demining there i don't know uh if they're bringing something up what they've got planned there uh but i would say that the goal is russia wants to take Avdevka by winter, right? By by the new year, I think that is the plan. Whether they'll be able to accomplish that or not, I don't know. Of course, uh, there's no way to take Avdevka head on. That is the fortress city of Ukraine, right? It makes Bakhmut look like, you know, uh, a nut compared to a soft peach. Um, it is, they've built it up for 10 years. It is the most heavily defended area. Um, actually, it's not where most of the shelling of Donetsk City itself has come from. There's several other settlements uh, in the area that most of the setting of Donetsk City, but Evdievka has been used to, to shell some of the towns, uh, uh, you know, small uh, cities on the outskirts of Donetsk City. Uh, so it, it is a, a redoubt and it is being used to shell, you know, the DNR. Um, and it has long been. And they've got some fifteen to 20,000 troops there. And of course, much more than just the city, there is a city under the city, right? There is extensive Soviet era factories built there that were all built with, um, you know, uh, nuclear uh, proof bunkers underneath, very extensive, uh, underneath all the factories, uh, you know, like Azovstal, except a lot more of them. Um, and uh, these have all been expanded into a very large tunnel network uh, by the Kiev regime over the past decade that they've had control of uh, the area uh, or, you know, Ukraine in general. Uh, so Russia has their their their, it, it, you know it's it's going to be difficult. Um, Russia's already taken casualties. It's not Bradley Square level casualties, uh, but you know they are charging with hundreds of tanks, and you can make the argument that this is the first real offensive that Russia has made since the early days of the conflict since Mariupol, because Bakhmut was primarily Wagner. Um, so people are making the argument that this is the first, you know, real offensive that Russia has made, uh, you know, the Russian army. Uh, so we'll see what they have learned in, in the meantime. But right now, from what I've heard, the artillery mismatch is really heavy. Um, and that is uh, extremely inhibiting uh, for 
the Kiev regime forces. Uh, the goal is to surround the city, to cut it off, to create a, a full cauldron. And it's very hard to tell right at the moment where Russian forces are in, in the formation of, of that cauldron. We've heard various claims about some of the uh, satellite set settlements to the north uh, and northwest of Avdeevka, about the progress there. There's heavy fighting. Um, Russian, the, the last I heard, uh, Russian forces had taken a, a Coke plant, not Coca-Cola, right? Okay. Um, you know, we're, we're talking the mineral uh, type. Um, that is an important height that basically give a complete uh, targeting view of all of Avdeevka and the surrounding uh, settlements. But then the Kiev regime used what artillery they had left and forced a Russian withdrawal. That was probably 24 hours ago, and I haven't heard definitively uh, what's going on yet. So we'll, I, I, I'll consider it in the gray zone until, until I hear otherwise. But Russia is generally in the course of this new offensive making some gains. They are not dramatic gains. Uh, and a lot of people with the amount of uh, armor, Russia is throwing hundreds, maybe over a thousand uh, tanks into this. I, I've heard some Russian commentators say that at times it almost seems like every single Russian troop uh, soldier has his own tank. Uh, so, so much for, you know, the Western propaganda that Russia's out of tanks or suffered, you know, thousands of tanks damage uh, earlier in the conflict. Uh, also, dis disinformation. Uh, but um the, the fighting is is very heavy, and Russia is going to take casualties among um, both manpower and gear, you know, uh, tanks, uh, armored vehicles uh, in this, because they are on the offensive. And there's two truisms that we have learned from this conflict. There's one, surprises almost impossible at the strategic level and still very, very hard at the tactical level because both sides are using satellites, right? Both sides are using extensive drone reconnaissance. Uh, surprises is very hard. Uh, but I think Avdeevka the, came as more of a surprise than, than anything else that we've seen in, in this conflict so far. Um, and the other one is that offense is hard. Even when Russia has overwhelming advantages, when they're going into an urban area or a fortified area, or even worse, a fortified urban area, whatever advantages Russian has, just like any you know, one on the offense, are going to be reduced if you know not completely nullified, and the, the casualties will mount. So expect Russian casualties to climb much more significantly now than they have been for months while the Kiev regime was was on the offensive. Uh, but I, yeah, I would I say, would say that the, the fact that Russia has completely stall, you know, stopped NATO's best, probably their best chance for an offensive, like dead flat. I mean, like no significant gains whatsoever, not even the slightest. I mean, I mean it was just a, a slap in the face. Um, and 
then immediately go on a significant counteroffensive. Uh, I think that is a, a you know a, a a cautious good sign about where the next year of this conflict is going. We know the incredible shortage of supplies that of, of not only NATO, but even their allied countries have come up with, with even the New York Times admitting that Russia is outproducing all of NATO in artillery shells by seven times. All of NATO. Russia is outproducing artillery shells by seven times. Times, New York Times, not my propaganda, but theirs. Um, and similarly, <laughs> Russia has increased the production of tanks, missiles, drones, you know, Lancet drones, reconnaissance drones, everything. Uh, so, and we now have reports in the Western media that the first of the new supplies from North Korea uh, have started arriving uh, at the front line. You know, whether it's actually there or not, I, I think seem to think it certainly is at least on the way. And so Russia seems comfortably supplied for another year or two, at the very least, of offensive at the same or higher firing rate, while the Kiev regime's, um, you know, uh, stock of artillery uh, will continue to to diminish um, what, what they have available. You know, that's why they're using cluster shells and 155 millimeter jacket because the U.S. has nothing else to provide. And they have already looted their stockpiles in both South Korea, which is why Russia had no problems turning to North Korea. Uh, South Korea has gone into it. Uh, but also the U.S. 300,000 artillery shells that the U.S. had stashed in Israel for both their or Israel's use in case of an emergency. They raided that last year. It's already long gone. And lo and behold, there's an emergency in Israel. They need artillery shells. Uh, so uh, they also desperately need air interceptor missiles and the US is already short of them. So the, um, uh, the uh, attack by Hamas was obviously, uh, at least in part, very carefully timed to exploit this supply problem. And whatever the U.S. may claim, they cannot supply Ukraine and Israel with many vital uh, supplies like artillery shells, like air defense missiles at the same time. They can't even supply Ukraine with them. Uh, so uh, things are starting to get interesting. Of course, they're also starting to... Uh, bring us ever closer to direct conflict between Russia and the U.S. or between the U.S. and Israel and Iran, uh, some type of, of second major conflict that is, you know, right, shall we say, on the margins of the existing one, uh, which is really not good for any of us, but uh, it does certainly make for, you know, interesting times. Before I ask Before you the, I next, ask you the question, next question, um, I have to ask from our audience, what is the, cre they said, what creature lurks behind Mark? And then, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I, yeah. I'm not in the studio uh, today. Uh, that is um, my four rescue crows. Oh my God. They're right. Someone said, is that a crow? Yes. Yeah. There's it's, it's Eurasian crows, right? They're gray and black uh, all across, you know, Russia and, and uh, parts of Europe. Uh, none of them can fly properly. Uh, they, they're all rescued from my local woods. 
Uh, I'm a yeah, I'm a geek birder. Uh, so um, and uh, crows happen to be my favorite because they're more intelligent than most people that I've met in my life. Um, so uh, yeah, I've I've got one of them actually. Hey, my boy. <laughs> Exciting. This one is underneath my table right now. <laughs> this is Morgan. She's our first one. She was actually born with a. Uh, a, a uh, malformed legs or they developed that way in the nest so we rescued her right from being pushed out of the nest basically and uh, she's now three four years old we're going on four and uh, she's a sweetheart uh, but she's she adorable on her she... little knees basically and uh, she lives a, a pretty happy life with our dogs and now the three other rescue crows that all have some types of wing or leg, leg injuries. Uh, so that's our, that and our two Sharpay is our zoo. Well, I saw your Sharpay. I used to have a Sharpay, but um, now we'll get, now that we've had a nice uh, breath, <laughs> we'll get back into the horrible things. Um, so uh, the elephant in the room, Israel, Palestine. Um, what are, you were in the Navy. I was in the Navy. People keep kind of asking me about these carriers. Um, so at first we moved the Ford there and I said, all right, well, that's kind of normal to have a boat out there. It's not a big deal, but now they're moving the Ike out there. And then yesterday, something strange happened, which I want your opinion on is that the Ford pulled ahead of its strike group and was pretty much alone and went forward onto Israel while the, while the small boys held back. Why do you think that that would happen? And then I want to get even deeper into the conflict. Um, well, we do know that within this carrier strike group, there are several special forces um, uh, that are, as from my understanding, already in Gaza. Uh, several units of U.S. special forces that are there uh, working with uh, the uh, Israeli forces right now to recover some hostages. and. At least from the first word I heard today, they recovered some bodies, which means they were not successful. Uh, so, uh, but of course, with U.S. boots on the ground in Gaza, that vastly increases uh, the chances of um, a, a, the escalation of this conflict to a major regional confrontation. Um, the, I still believe that the carriers are there primarily as deterrent. Uh, they are meant particularly as a message to Syria and Iran uh, not to get involved. Uh, they know that the carriers are not going to work uh, when it comes to Hezbollah. Uh, you know, that's, that's not going to deter Hezbollah. Um, but I, I also think that the U.S. probably does not want to become this to become a major uh, theater of escalation either. The potential for escalation with Russia is definitely there. Russia does not certainly want an escalation in Syria, but they've got bases there. Um, and uh, we've already seen Israel um, hitting Damascus airport. Uh, pretty hard. Um, so uh, Russia does have substantial air defense assets uh, in 
Syria, you know, in Tardis uh, and elsewhere uh, that can be turned on uh, and, you know, provide an in, uh, in, in area, an in A2AD a area uh, that uh, is probably even capable of, of stopping the F-35. Um, Russia has not done so yet, right? Um, if they shot down U.S. planes, or uh, sorry, Israeli planes that were firing on Damascus, uh, which they have not done for years, uh, but these attacks on the airport, this, is a, a, this isn't taking pot shots at Hezbollah or Iran uh, within Syrian borders, which Russia more or less acquiesced to, right, to keep, uh, avoid a direct con conflict with Israel uh, over the last eight years now. Uh, but uh, obviously Israel crossed the red line. And, and what's more, um, they, they crossed the red line with regards to uh, Iran uh, bringing, uh, well, whatever they were bringing, there were Iranian planes that were uh, prevented uh, with, with these strikes from landing uh, at Damascus airport. So without Syria, Syria probably almost certainly does not want to it, what, maybe they would like to get involved in this, but um, there's no love lost between the Syrian government and Hamas because in the course of the proxy war against Syria, Hamas joined the other side. And fighters from Hamas were fighting the Syrian government, potentially even fighting Russian forces uh, in Syria. Um now, of course, Syria su still supports, uh, the Syrian government still supports, in theory, Palestinian sovereignty and independence and statehood. Uh, but let's face it, uh, Syria does not need a resumption or, or a beginning of direct conflict with Israel or the United States right now. The U.S. still controls Syria uh, uh, east of the river, uh, including all of Russia's oil and wheat fields. Uh, and Turkey, uh, you know, uh, that, that forever uh, quixotic uh, player uh, is still camped out uh, in all of northern Syria and has given no signs of ever intending to release that territory. So Syria is, is crippled right now. And without Syria able to enter the fray, that vastly reduces the potential allies that the Palestinians have to call on. And with Syria not involved, power projection for Iran becomes almost impossible. Iran can't project power into Palestine without Syria there. Uh, Hezbollah is just not going to cut it, uh, not alone. And Hezbollah, of course, is a much more effective fighting force than Hamas. Although, give Hamas credit with you know whatever br brutality that we saw there, that was some positively missing mission impossible shit i mean paragliders um uh, amphibious assaults fpv drones taking out robotic machine gun emplacements you know that that was that was impressive uh, that no one thought hamas was capable of that but that i guess is part of the whole racism of the way that uh, israel and the west look at hamas right as 
you know, we, we, we know, they said human animals, that's what Palestinians are, human animals. Uh, well, those human animals just gave the IDF and Mossad a bloody nose that they won't ever forget. And this was with a tiny fraction of the force that Israel has, uh, with a tiny fraction of the military, uh, an infinitesimal fraction of the military supplies. Uh, but I think that Hamas is even smarter than that because of the timing. Uh, one, the timing uh, when, when Israel will provide it, find it very difficult. Uh, they will need artillery if Hezbollah enters the fray. Uh, right now, they don't need artillery so much. But if, if Hezbollah enters the fray, they only have to hold Hezbollah. They don't have to invade uh, Lebanese territory, uh, which will make it more difficult for Hezbollah to be on the offensive than we saw in the early 2000s. It will be a, a different type of story. But they will still need artillery, so it will make it difficult for them. Uh, but the other part of the timing is is a much more shall we say, overtly political, geopolitical issue. Saudi Arabia was about, as far as we know, to reach a um, normalization agreement with Israel that has been pushed hard by the United States, by the Biden administration. It was put forward first by Trump, and then uh, Biden has picked it up. And they were the sweetener for the deal was the U.S. was going to provide a security guarantee relationship with Saudi Arabia that's basically akin to the one the U.S. has with Israel, yeah. right? The sweet deal on military supplies, military aid, the top intelligence sharing, uh, training, you know, the, the, the whole nine yards. Uh, and uh, Mohammed bin Salman, you know, his, his foreign policy has vastly matured. Uh, and Saudi Arabia is has joined BRICS. Uh, they've joined the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization as a dialogue partner. They're you know the, obviously reaching out to China. You know this talk of uh, um, uh, abandoning the dollar uh, in favor of the Chinese currency and in, in oil trade. There you know lots of things uh, that the the rapprochement, the crazy rapprochement with Iran that just, you know, I think completely inverts a, a pillar of the geopolitics of our world and makes me believe we're living in an alternate reality already. Uh, I mean, we just had the president of Iran and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia have a phone call yesterday and issue a statement jointly condemning uh, the the uh, siege and and ultimately of course the cleansing of Gaza that's 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 uh, strange, but Saudi Arabia is not going to abandon, uh, you know, the U.S. completely. They want a multi-vector foreign policy with options, and the U.S. was presenting them with a sweet deal, uh, with with regards to Israel, and you know it's been de facto for decades the U.S. Um, structure geopolitical structure for uh, hegemony of the Middle East was a tripod with the U.S. at top and then hub and spoke relationship with Saudi on one side and Israel on the other. And that was targeted at Iran as the glue holding that together. Of course, with the Iran-Saudi 
uh, suddenly normalization of diplomatic relations and Saudi ending the, the you know failed war in Yemen, that tripod was just about to collapse. And the U.S. was trying to shore that up by pushing through this normalization deal with Israel. I think Hamas realized very well that if that normalization deal went through and Saudi recognized Israel, that would also recognize it within its existing borders and the settling, you know, uh, throughout uh, Palestine, throughout the West Bank. And that would be de facto uh, dissolving uh, any Arab support uh, left or even hope of support of Palestine. And where Saudi goes, the rest of the Gulf goes. Some of the Gulf has, has already, of course, normalized relations, but the rest would have followed. And that would have been an existential geopolitical event for Palestine, right? You, I think they're doomed anyway, to be perfectly honest. I don't, I don't want to be too, too fatalist there. But uh, Russia and China can, and, and even Iran cannot power project there. Uh, and uh, the political sentiment in the U.S. and the EU right now is echoing the genocide rhetoric coming out of Israel. Uh, so I think that Palestine will become a very soon, a certainly out of the Gaza, a diaspora people, much like the Jews once were uh, before they came back uh, from Europe and U.S. and the former Soviet Union and colonized Palestine. Uh, so but Hamas has averted that. Have they have averted that immediate geopolitical uh, crisis, at least for them, for now. Uh, and we have the word that that Saudi has uh, at least, you know, has indefinitely shelved that normalization deal. Uh, and with what's going to happen uh, over the next couple of months as they uh, start to cleanse Gaza. Um, and enter conflict with Hezbollah, it's going to to get much bloodier on on all sides. And uh, Saudi Arabia will find it, even if they wanted to, domestically, politically impossible uh, for them to to normalize relations with Israel. So I think that that was Hamas' really real goal with all of this. Um, that's my reading because just. Just to kill some Israeli civilians and military, steal some military assets. Yes, that was great. Uh, they had people prepositioned when they broke into the garrisons and basins, whose only job was to run in and grab everything and drag it back to Gaza. They had a, a whole logistics force set up for that. Uh, so, you know, they got some 40 armored vehicles, lots of ammunition, shells, you know, everything. Uh, but, um, and they got a number of hostages. That's a, a mixed bag because it's as much of a blessing as it is a curse. They intend to use it to trade back for the 5,000 plus Palestinians that are held uh, imprisoned uh, by the Israeli government. Hamas regards those as hostages. Uh, so, uh, but that, that's not enough. That is not enough to justify the expenditure of resources everything Hamas had, they threw into this. Uh, and, you know, they were never going to be able to hold territory, but it was a very successful and dramatic raid that, um, you know, brought, made Israel 
bring the hammer down on Gaza. And we know that Netanyahu had actually facilitated Hamas control of Gaza. He thought he had Hamas under control, manageable, and that by having them be the public face of the Palestinian resistance, that he was, a, a you know, uh, they were effectively demonized and marginalized. And uh, well, that one came back to bite him uh, hard. Uh, so I, I believe that Hamas's real goal was to force Israel to make such a response that would force Saudi uh, to uh, break, to end this normalization process with Israel. And also, you know, potentially to incite, to attempt to incite the Arab and even the Islamic world to remind them that, that Palestine still exists, that the Palestinian people still exist uh, in Palestine, uh, but may not for much longer. Uh, and right now there's a crisis throughout the region. A lot of these Arab governments that are effectively vassals of the US, of the West, like Jordan, uh, they could face a severe domestic crisis uh, because the people will demand involvement. Uh, they're already storming over the fences to, to, you know, try to come to the Palestinians' aid there. Um, it's going to destabilize the whole region, potentially. Um, God knows what's going to happen in Lebanon. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we know what Hezbollah will do, but we don't know what, what the rest of the Lebanese government and so on. Uh, so this is another potential huge crisis. And I mean, there's clear lines of connection uh, between this, the events here and what's happening in the Ukraine, more than just Zelensky, uh, you know, trying to um, save some of his uh, military uh, supply, which obviously now is going to be re-diverted uh, to Israel. And any type of... Uh, Zelensky has evidently been demanding a personal tour of Israel uh, <laughs> to remind everyone that Ukraine still exists. Um, I don't think the Israelis are interested at all. They're no. like, go away. He's going there to go shopping. He wants to yeah, go he, shopping. He's, I think Zelensky, I did, did the videos, he had the look of a jilted lover, like like a lover who has been put aside for a hotter, younger thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't have any sympathy for the man, but if I did, you know, it, it would be tragic. It was a difficult week for him, for sure, <laughs> for all of us, but especially for him. Oh, yeah, he's really suffering. We should take a moment of silence. For Zelensky. All right, that's enough. No. Um, <laughs> that's, that's no, that will do. <laughs> That'll do it. You know what's interesting to me about when you know, for the West, the Middle East is such a blind spot. Um, even for some people that do geopolitical analysis, it's difficult to really get into the into the intricacies of the Middle yeah. East. Full, full disclosure, I am not a Middle East. No, 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 none of us right, are. Right. But so, yeah, I just think I, that it's really interesting that this we'll call it a conflict for now i guess it's kind of a war bibi did declare war but we're getting to see where the where the alliances and allegiances lie so iran immediately went into di diplomatic um travels uh, their foreign minister went to iraq lebanon and syria 
Um, this is right after Israel bombed Syria's airports. I believe he landed at the Russian airbase. Um, Iraq traveled to Lebanon um, and, to Russia. and Russia. Um, and the Taliban, now see, it came, we first thought it was a joke, but it is official and they've asked again today. The Taliban has asked for safe passage for non-Arab Muslims to travel back to Palestine. Not saying that that will happen, but it's just yeah. interesting to the, see the different kind of uh, the Muslim world coming together, yeah. but also like pragmatism yeah. and like hesitancy or um, I don't know. It's just a very, a very interesting dynamic. And then the UAE being the Gulf, always being a wild card saying that they stand with Israel and allowing flights to take off from there to rearm Israel. Um, so it's just a really, really interesting way. I didn't expect that from Saudi that you already discussed. I didn't expect Oman to stand with Palestine, and they did. The Gulf countries get really strange. So I think that that's been kind of um, interesting. But I'm glad that you said uh, genocidal languages. So we what we've seen today is israel has attacked hezbollah and has attacked the southern areas of lebanon and has killed two civilians killed two elderly people and a reporter that was yesterday where like there's no no response are we going to are we going to do what is it 2014 all over again where israel just commits war crimes everywhere and yeah nobody's i mean oh. much more than much more than that i mean this is complete green light. I mean, we, we, we the, the Europe has made it clear that Israel can do whatever they want as long as they get it done as quick as they can. I mean, there there will be no um, there will be no cry. I mean, right now throughout Europe, um, uh, simply flying the Palestinian flag mm -hmm. is now uh, you know uh, an imprisonable offense. Um, you 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 uh, you cannot post anything pro Hamas on Meta now. Mm -mm. Um, the United Kingdom has outlawed pro uh, Palestinian protests. I mean, uh, they they are obviously this is the laying out the map, and we've heard from the uh, you know the uh, Israeli uh, military from the IDF chiefs that uh, there will be no war crimes consideration. Uh, for Israeli troops, that they and we, we I mean, no, there never has been. The U.S. will always shield them with the veto, but I mean, there's no outcry from that uh, from the United States. You know, when the 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 leader of the of the IDF, you know, refers to Palestinians as human animals, and there's no reaction from the West. You know, much like with Russia now, yeah. all the masks are off, all mm -hmm. the veneer yeah. of human rights, of values, it's it's all been cast to the side. And Palestinians are the new Russians now. Mm -hmm. right? I said okay that last to, time. Yeah. It's I okay said. to hate and kill mm -hmm. Palestinians just like with Russians. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, and, uh, you know, they're making this perfectly clear, not not just with silence and not just with censorship, you know, but but actively, you know, supporting Israel's uh, actions uh, in Gaza. So, um... so let's talk about the propaganda, if you want. Let's talk about the babies, the ba the non-existent. The yeah. so we've gotten this. We've gotten a beheaded baby story, which was horrific to first hear about. 
We've now found out there's no proof of the of the babies. They don't exist. We this story. You're in Moscow, but this story has polarized the United States. It yeah, has polarized the United States. And then today and yesterday, Israel bombs the evacuation routes. But we're still talking about beheaded babies that don't exist and arguing yeah. over the story. A million people move out of Gaza here. And then they bomb where they're supposed to be evacuating from. Correct. Love. Correct. And that's reported by the London Times. So it's not us making this up, but that's as far as it went. That's as far as it went. Um, last night I was uh, having a discussion and I said exactly what you said. I said, where were you guys a year and a half ago? That was the warm up. That was the warm up. Like you won't see anything like, like you, this will be like nothing you've ever seen before. The way that the West will uphold Israel with the outlawing and the censorship, it's already started. It's terrifying over here. Is it this? Is it what is it like in Russia? I mean, I think Russia, of course, is far more focused on Ukraine. There is, first of all, you know, Russia does not love Hamas, right? Russia. Russia doesn't do Sunni Islamic radicals. Let, let's be frank about that. The Russian government is very much still pushing the we are neutral, but at the same time pushing, you know, the only sane position, which is that refer, you know, stop fighting, uh, return to, to peace, return to diplomacy. And the only way, the only solution is the Palestinian state. Of course, simply mentioning a Palestinian state is already seen as anti-Israeli. That's that's certainly the way the Israeli government sees it. Uh, but, I mean, the, there are figures in the West making claims that, oh, of course, Hamas couldn't do this alone. Um, you know, first, you know, the first one was Iran did it. And actually, quietly, the... Uh, you, the Biden administration uh, and the Israeli government have both said that they see no signs of direct Iranian involvement in this uh, Hamas's operation Al-Aqsa flood, right? Um, and if there was, they, they would probably certainly call it out for that, which I think the fact that they haven't is a sign, at least at an official level, that they don't want escalation uh, to involve Iran. Uh, but that doesn't stop the political actors uh, among the West screaming about Iranian involvement and screaming about Russian involvement that, that you know, this must be that Zelen that was Zelensky's line that Putin is behind it all. And it got to the point where even the Israeli ambassador uh, to Ukraine uh, came out and said, this is nonsense. Russia, Russia has not been involved in this. Russia. I mean, they support Palestinian statehood, right? They su mm -hmm. support Palestinian sovereignty. They recognize a Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. That's a holdover from the Soviet Union. But they stopped all support, uh, certainly to Gaza, you know, mm -hmm. with, with uh, you know, becoming the Russian Federation and Hamas uh, getting control there. They talk to Hamas, but that Russia talks to everybody. Uh, so uh, Russia is at a remove. And at least early last week, Russian state media was putting out to people, uh, toned down on the anti-Israeli rhetoric, mm -hmm. we're neutral here. And I think 
Putin's statements since then have actually changed. I think I Russia agree. Let's talk Putin's about this. Let's talk about the statement. So I've got I got into an argument with somebody today about it. And he said that the siege of Gaza is just like the siege of Leningrad. Yeah. And I said, really interesting choice of words for Putin. And every, a couple of people came after me and said, you're twisting it. You're twisting it. And I said, if you have even followed Putin for just the last 18 months, which I mean, his family was there. <laughs> correct. And I'm like, he chooses his words and his analogies extremely deliberately. Who sieged Leningrad? The and Nazis. who is sieging Gaza? Exactly. And people, exactly. And people argued, he didn't say that. And I'm like, that's yes, exactly he what he said. That he is did. what he said. Can I yeah. please say something as a Russian, which is my role in this <laughs> establishment? <laughs> the designated Russian person. But seriously, you are very correct. Uh, because Putin never, he chooses, he doesn't choose to speak unless he's certain about what he wants to say. And when he does, uh, I always, when I listen or read what he says, I always take it on two levels. One, well, obviously, literally, what, what is he saying? But also, why is he saying what he is saying? Because there is always some type of a deeper meaning there always and so the fact that he said that and that's by the way and i'm sure that a lot of our listeners will understand that's a very powerful image for russians especially for the whole country uh and for him it's something that is not used lightly here for him to actually use that analogy is very important very serious and extremely powerful well, yeah. it's, it gets but lost on the It's also not the Russian government, you know, apologizing for Hamas. They've been very no. clear that that Israel, as far as they say, you know, has a right to response to terrorism, which is a joke, of course. You know, this moral posturing from the West. Oh, uh, it's completely different. That's an act of terrorism. Please, you literally, the West, you know, the U.S., including Israel literally supported head chopping suicide bombing jihadists terrorists in syria in libya in afghanistan and elsewhere terrorism only counts when the victim is a westerner or an israeli if you you know don't consider them part of the west uh so uh, i i'm not in the palestinians shoes and you know I'm not particularly fond of the ideology of Islamism, political Islamism, any more than I am the ideology of Zionism, but I will never begrudge the Palestinian right to resist the occupation of their country and the, the genocidal ethnic cleansing that has been slowly you know, carried out uh, on them. Uh, I'm not in their shoes. If I was, I would probably be a cold-blooded, bloody monster myself if I was in their shoes, maybe worse than Hamas. Uh, so, uh, you know, what, you know, they, first of all, we know, as you pointed out, a lot of what they did, they killed some civilians. There's no question about that. Right? Israel kills Palestinian civilians every day. So on on a, a simple level that has very limited moral impact for me when, when the opponents... Are, are the ones using, I mean, the U.S. is the biggest supporter of terrorism in the world, uh, repeatedly, you know, uh, in, in multiple uh, conflicts. And 
supporting right-wing death squads for decades in South and Central America is the same thing, right? Killing civilians. So um, that that doesn't bother me so much. Uh, but um, this... The Russian attitude towards the conflict is obviously changing with the threat of of the the cleansing, you know, the genocide uh, against Gaza, uh, and that's interesting. And China has also made a very strong, surprisingly strong statement uh, yesterday in support of Palestine mm-hmm. and warning about you know Israel and the West crossing the line here. So uh, quietly, you know, forces are aligning. Now, that does not mean that anyone necessarily is going to step in to prevent this because they simply lack the military capability to do so. But it does mean that in the aftermath of this, there are going to be geopolitical repercussions for the West and for Israel for doing this. And it is further solidifying. I said, Saudi and Iran, the leaders on a phone call agreeing on something and condemning, you know, what is being done with open US and EU support. That's, that's huge. That that is uh, a very and Qatar as well. And Qatar and Saudi Arabia don't get along either. So good job, guys. You you managed to get (laughs) Iran and uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar to all agree on something uh, against what you're doing. That that it is a diplomatic. Look at what Israel has done. They've they've brought the Arab world together and they've united Americans in their warmongering. Not just the Arab world. (laughs) I mean Iran, not not even technically Arab. Oh, and by the way, Lydia. Yes, but you know you're not the only Russian here. Yeah, Russian Russian. So okay, okay, fellow Russian. But you know what sucks about that analogy that Putin gave out is it's going to be completely lost on Western ears because we use the most extreme. It's not even going to be repeated. Uh, we they're, use the they're most not reporting it. Extreme analogies ever. So Hamas is now ISIS, and they're also Nazis. But Putin is also Hitler, and the Russians are also Nazis. So, like, everything here is just extreme, extreme, extreme. So, I mean, I don't know if you guys heard, but yesterday we were warned not to go into into well-populated cities because there would be terrorist attacks. We were told not to wear anything that identifies us as Jewish um, out in public. <laughs> like, we, it is psychotic here. It is incredible and it's a madhouse it's, it's a madhouse i've never seen it's worse than after 9 11 i may, never may i just say i am so very glad to be living in the same country i know what is it like to have a leader that like actually <laughs> chooses his own words and like means what yeah, he can, says? Can, can sit down <laughs> for three hours and debate international relations theory and world order sorry i mean i I respect the Chinese leader. I respect the leadership uh, in Iran. Um, I've never thought much of Assad, but he held out for a whoa, decade. Whoa, 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 whoa. We'll talk about that another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah another <laughs> time. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm sorry, top leader in the world, hands down. Uh, at an intellectual level, at a, a strategic level, at a 
uh, cold-blooded, patient, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bring it to you in our own time. We're not going to fall for your little provocations. I mean, thank God he's in charge of Russia and not me, because he is able to separate himself emotionally from, from these things. So before we end, which I don't want to end, but how did we go from we two or three weeks ago, time's not even a thing anymore, but two or three weeks ago, we praised the Nazi. We gave him an award in a in a parliament and then the, to now we're calling hamas nazis in order to condemn them <laughs> we got here how have we done this the mental gymnastics that it took to get yeah, here. western propaganda is tying itself in knots right now trying to i mean they still haven't even admitted that the kiev regime's offensive is over <laughs> much less acknowledging that Russia has gone on a giant, huge offensive that they say that Russia shouldn't even be capable of, right? You know, on, on top of all, all this Nazi stuff. And now, yeah, now the Palestinians are, are Nazis, of course. It's, it is painful watching the, the twister body, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking, it's like body horror type um, uh, <laughs> manipulations uh, of the narrative there to to try to keep it it up, and the the it's amazing how quickly now they resort not just to the propaganda that, but to outright censorship, banning of protests, uh, everything. It is amazing. What's it, is it amazing. like for you two? Because I know Russia is very in tune with their own history and keeping it accurate. What is it like for you two to just watch the complete historical illiteracy of the West as we celebrate Nazis and then support genocide all in one month? Lydia. Oh, well, it's, it's, I don't even know how to tackle all of this because for me as a Russian, when I look at it, the the mildest way I can put it is I am I am shocked <laughs> uh, with how things like that are handled. Um, a, a lot of the narratives that I see coming from the West are just insane to me. I actually said it in the chat last night that sometimes I feel like I'm living in some type of an alternative dimension because there is the history that I know that I've been taught, also things that I've experienced myself based on, you know, my life and the places that I've visited, the experiences that I have with the people. And then there are some really strange narratives, which I even have no idea how people reach those conclusions. And I feel like this past month has been so crazy as far as, uh, just the world events, the propaganda, the, the Canada experience that we all had, and we just only recovered from that, and we went through, you know, straight to this, and this has been just the craziest display of propaganda, and to me, because, and I'm sure that most Russians can relate to this, just what, what I've experienced in the past year and a half and how quickly uh, people can be demonized and how quickly people reach certain conclusions about things is just these days, it's, it's insane. It, it's terrifying. 
Yeah, it's it. That's no. There's no other word. It's terrifying. So now we're at a not even an impasse. It's just absolute chaos. So today, the time limit has run out for the hospital to evacuate and for the Gaza northern Gaza Strip to evacuate. Um, IDF is saying that full scale invasion is imminent, and no, really, no other statements other than uh, minor terrorist skirmishes in Syria and some issues with the southern border of Lebanon. Um, how fast do you think this is going to happen, Mark? And what should we look for? And what, like, I, I just don't even know how to formulate the question because um, I'm kind of, I'm terrified and I'm extremely worried about what's ha- going to happen in the next couple of days. Yeah, I, I don't think. I think we might see another few days before it starts. Uh, obviously, they're going to focus on on northern Gaza first, uh, and then, you know, once they've pushed people out of north Gaza, they intend to push them out of south Gaza. You know, uh, presuming they clear uh, north Gaza. Um, from with there, uh, Egypt uh, has, of course, uh, refused. Uh, you know. Uh, mass numbers of, of refugees uh, to be allowed to cross the border. And that's being done for two reasons. Uh, one, uh, they do recognize that that would be the end of, of Palestinian Gaza, you know, that, that Israel would, would wholeheartedly, if they open that, just push them all out, right? That would, would just cleanse. So in a way, while causing some personal suffering to Palestinians, they are also trying to, uh, you could call it an attempt to save Palestine. Uh, on the other hand, the current Egyptian government does not like Hamas, right? Hamas is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, and this, you know, is a military dictatorship in in Egypt, whatever you want to, you know, whatever the pretense since uh, that uh, came to power overthrowing the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, so there's no love lost there. And actually, we heard early in the week that Egypt actually got word of this, uh, and they tried to warn the Israeli government, Mossad, 10 days in advance, something is coming out of Gaza, and they were ignored. Uh, so um, Egypt has a very interesting uh, role uh, in all of this. But the um, I think there's expect a few more days of prep of coordination of plans with the US and uh, uh, the IDF uh, because of course uh, US intelligence will be instrumental you know beyond just the you know the special forces on the ground but everything that they can give intelligence wise uh, to Israel will be done uh, to help them uh, to succeed with this as as quickly as possible um and i don't think it will be easy for them uh but they've called up they've 360,000 reservists on top of a 200,000 strong active duty military they're very serious about this um now a large part of that of course will be to to blocking hezbollah uh but um you know they they're they're pulling up all the stops they intend to to complete this now and netanyahu's political career is 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 on the chopping block with polls showing that most israelis uh hold him responsible uh, for what has happened you know as as they should 
but um, his only chance is through some type of, you know, um, enormous conflict that that people forget that he was responsible for starting it and see it as the hero won it. Otherwise, his his political career is over. So he's got a, a, a personal thing in this. But I think we'll see a few days yet before they get underway. They do want to, as many civilians to get out as possible because this is going to take time. They want to make it as quick as possible. But they do want to minimize the body count such that not that they care about Palestinian lives, but they don't want Europe getting cold feet. They don't want Europe. The U.S. will never have cold feet, right? You 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 could pile up Palestinian corpses from Tel Aviv to New York, and and the U.S. wouldn't care. No. But they they want to try to you know uh, stop Europe from starting hand wringing when their populations start to see you know images of of uh, you know all the Palestinian children that will be pulled out of the rubble and, and from homes and, and whatnot. So I think a few more days of prep time. I don't think anyone's quite ready. You will see increasing amounts of raids first into Gaza, like we, we saw uh, early today. I think we'll see more of this, shall we say, reconnaissance and force and attempts to recover some hostages. Uh, but um i think definitely within a week you know no longer than that a question from the audience which i'm interested to ask, hear your opinion why do you think these countries she didn't specify which countries but i guess it's all of them why do you think these countries allow themselves to be manipulated by the u.s and israel because the elites see it as in their personal best interests and and the best interests of their country i mean it's a in international relations theory, we call it bandwagoning, right? You, uh, you know, if you're talking, say, let's say countries like Jordan, right? You know, maybe even closer to the UK than the US, but, you know, certainly involved there. Um, they, you know, in, in a world where, you know, there are regional threats and there are global threats, uh, you often find it is not in your best interest to resist, you know, the hegemon, the top dog. Uh, it can cost you economically. It can cost you militarily. Uh, it can cost you politically. Russia is the only country in the world that has, you know, resisted the U.S. the way it has. Every other country that has fallen afoul, Serbia, Syria, Libya, you know, they all go... Uh, Iraq, they all go the way of the dodo. Uh, Russia has unique economic and military capabilities because of its geography, you know, its history, its nuclear arsenal, uh, you know, as a deterrent, at, at least from an, a, a strategic assault, uh, that it, it has luxuries that most other countries simply can't afford. And um, sometimes it is better to to get in line with the dominant power than rather than risk your your country and its people. And sometimes for certain political elites, you know, that become seen as a subordinate, you know, uh, authorities there, you know, you want to say viceroys for the U.S., it can be uh, personally 
uh, profitable. I mean, look at Europe. Um, look how much, I mean, France used to have at least rhetorically an independent foreign policy from U.S. hegemony. Look at the sea changes, how wedded Europe has become to U.S. hegemony and to the, I, I would say, an equivalent supremacist ideology of exceptionalism of their own, right? You want to, instead of American exceptionalism, call it European or Western exceptionalism. But this, this generation of EU foreign policy elite, you know, all of this talk of Joseph Burrell about garden and jungle, you know, Europe is a garden, the rest of the world is a jungle, which obviously you know, represents a, a way a significant percent of the EU foreign policy elite thinks now. That is word for word. That is book titles by Robert Kagan. Look it up. I mean, we've heard numerous EU leaders, Joseph Borrell, Annalena Baerbach, the foreign minister of Austria, they quote Robert Kagan, the arch US neocon, the husband of Victoria Newland. Of the, our monster. Yeah, that's chapter and verse, right? They, they quote him. The entire EU foreign policy elite right now has been mentally colonized by U.S. neocons. They, they, they fully believe it, right? People are shocked. How could Germany just allow Nord Stream to be destroyed? Because there was a changing of the political guard. I mean, Mer first of all, Schroeder. Then Merkel was, eh, okay, if German business wants it, I guess I'll agree to it. Now... You have the, the German elite in power that didn't want it built in the first place and want it destroyed because they believe in U.S. hegemony. Like, they believe in it, right? They think that they can be the moral guide to a better U.S.-dominated world with just the right nudges, right? That, that's the way they see themselves. And they quote Robert Kagan, chapter and verse. That's the world we're living in. That's... They, in that case, it's not bandwagoning out of interests. The EU foreign policy elite is ideologically in bed with the very worst U.S. neocons right now. That's terrifying. They believe, they believe and they believe in their moral superiority over Russia, over China, over Iran, over the Palestinians. They uh, are incapable, much like the U.S. has always been, of seeing their own hypocrisies. Do you think you want to try to end on a positive note? I don't know if I've ever ended up. What, what have I ever done that? What have I ever done? <laughs> Russia is going to win this conflict eventually. Yeah, I mean, that's a hundred. It will be an ugly victory, and it won't look See, like what you, you still hope can't it even end on a yeah, positive. Sorry. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll just Mirror's let's timer. just let's Mirror's just keep it at Russia's gonna win. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, Mearsheimer yeah. called it an ugly victory. I think it was was perfect. I mean, because he's he's right where I am. I think. Uh, oh yeah, you're both world. incredible realists. Except he's nowhere near as black pilled as you. You are so Can black. <laughs> Can I just just say my this favorite phrase for the Russian? <laughs> okay, okay, Mark, I'll be with you. Hey, and oh, I'll, by the I'll... way, the Black Sea Fleet had to retreat to Nova Rossiysk. Did you see? Oh, that? No, we're, we're, we're okay. I, I want to be positive here a little bit. But... 
Um, Mark, but but I want to say my favorite phrase because people accuse me, and as you know, like most most Russians have been accused, they accuse me of not being optimistic or positive enough. And I always say that a pessimist only has nice surprises in life. <laughs> so that's that's how I feel. So we'll just be kind of carefully carefully optimistic, and Russia is gonna win. That's for sure. My my favorite expression that is one of the guiding pillars of my life was a, a little philosophical conversation about hope and um, the uh, if you want to say the the cynic said that hope is the carrot dangled in front of the mule to keep him plodding along and then the response are you saying we shouldn't hope and the philosopher's response I'm saying is you should remove the carrot and walk forward with your eyes open. Beautiful. Well, it's been amazing, Mark. Tell our listeners where they can find you and where your next appearances are going to be. Yeah. Okay. So everyone, you know, you can take the black pill out of your mouth now. And, <laughs> you know, this conversation is over. Yeah, it's Saturday. Uh, Try to have a good day after this. Really? I'm I'm, I, I I believe in Russia victory eventually, so I'm, I'm not that black pill. But anyway, <laughs> um, you can follow me, uh, first of all, on Telegram, right? Mark Sloboda or The Real Politic with Mark Sloboda. You know, you can find it. The, the links are, are everywhere. Um, uh, follow the, the Telegram. You get everything. Uh, my sub stack, uh, also The Real Politic with Mark Sloboda. Um, it is free for everyone. Uh, and I put, uh, at least one of my radio, I do three, four five radio interviews a day, particularly on Sputnik. I put at least one up there a day during the week. Anyway, uh, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, I'm on YouTube, uh, not as active there as I have been because of, uh, you know, the radio and other commitments, but I'd like to get it back up. Uh, and technically I guess I'm still on Facebook. If anyone uh, under 70, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's Facebook yeah. anymore. Yeah. Telegram, Substack, Twitter, YouTube. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners. And thank you to Lydia. It's tomorrow's episode tentatively. Fingers crossed will be our friend from Gaza. Uh, we have Steve Sweeney on Wednesday and Scott Ritter whenever he decides to show up. Check out check out Mark. Russia's gonna win two weeks from now. Two weeks from now. Check hey, out Mark's Scott uh, Ritter is the opposite of me. Mark, check <laughs> out Mark's appearance on Jimmy Dore last night. And um, shout out to Amon and Yemen. Please don't forget about Yemen. They still need us. You can donate to our project in Yemen at ddgeopolitics.com. It has been an amazing episode. And thank you all again. Thank you, Sarah and Lydia.